We are LP Magazine, and since 2001, we've been the leader in providing content and education for the loss prevention and asset protection industry, and we are known as the voice and authority of the LP community. Each episode, we'll be sharing and discussing the latest in trends and current issues related to all things retail and profit protection. You're listening to the LPM Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's webinar, Pressured to Do More with Less, Just Add Prescriptive Analytics, sponsored by Zebra Prescriptive Analytics. Countless loss prevention teams are feeling the pinch to do more with less initiatives from corporate. The one-two punch of increasing expectations despite budget cuts presents a monumental challenge. Worse, report-based analytic solutions, while build as improving productivity only tie up precious resources as investigators sift through page after page raw data trying to find new cases. Today, the team at Zebra Prescriptive Analytics will help us learn a little more about prescriptive analytics, how it can help prioritize your work, ramp up your case resolution rate, return more money to the bottom line, and ultimately exceed expectations without increasing headcount. I'm Jack Britton, Editorial Director at LP Magazine, and I'll be your moderator today. Before we begin, let's review a few quick housekeeping items. This webcast is designed to be interactive between you and the presenters. The console you are looking at can be completely customized. You can resize or move any of the windows that you have open. At the bottom of your screen are multiple application widgets you can use uh, you have, if you have any questions during the podcast, you can click on the Q&A box in your console and submit your questions. We will try to get as many questions answered as possible at the end of the presentation. If you don't answer your question live, someone will follow up with you afterwards by email. An archived version of the webinar will be available the next day or two and can be accessed using the same link that was sent to you earlier. Others in your organization can also register and access the archive webcast for the next several months. If you experience any technical issues, please visit the website help guide by clicking on the help button below the presentation window. It has a question mark icon and covers common technical issues. Okay, now that we're past that, let's begin by introducing today's thought leaders. Scott Bethune, LPC is a recent addition to uh, Zebra Prescriptive Analytics working on the customer success team. He comes to Zebra with over 12 years of experience in retail asset protection, with the majority of that time spent heavily involved in the AP analytics space. Molly Pollard is a senior customer success analyst at Zebra. She brings 10 years of experience in retail and analytics to helping her clients utilize data to drive actions and decisions. She has served clients through various verticals, including pharmacy, fashion, cosmetics, grocery, and home improvement. With that, with that let's begin today's presentation with Scott and Molly. Good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon, Jack. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you. Uh, Scott, why don't, why don't we start with some basics here? You recently did an article on the topic here. Um, what do you mean by do more with less when you're talking about prescriptive analytics? Sure. So essentially we're saying do more with less there. 
a handful of ways that it can manifest itself, but it's basically, you know, you either, you have a limited set of resources and it feels like there can constantly be additional responsibilities. And then sometimes even your set of resources um, can be drawn from. So, uh, you know, most people have been in an environment where there's a reduction in force and you lose team members, yet the expectation to deliver remains the same. Uh, at times, uh, responsibilities will shift. So teams may um, want to do something different. And for instance, you know, asset protection may uh, suddenly be responsible for e-commerce fraud now. And so that may be another um, shift in complexity and things that you need to do. Or maybe the business is making strategic decisions in a different way. Um, I would wager that most people have experienced something over the past year, such as we didn't used to do buy online, pick up in store, and now we do. And there is all kinds of loss and complexity and things that come along with a new process like that. Um, and asset protection, it's not like we're going to add a team for you in asset protection. You just have to figure out a way to fold that into your um, current responsibilities. And so, you know, sometimes it's do more with same, sometimes it's do more with, and obviously any of those three things can happen in tandem as well, uh, making it just even more fun to, to try to figure out. And so we, uh, with Zebra Prescriptive Analytics, obviously uh, heavily believe in the idea of technology, using your data um, and automating analytics uh, to be kind of the force multiplier or the leverage that you use um, so that you can use, you know, limited or reduced headcount to be able to be as or more efficient as you were previous to any change or whatever that might have happened. So um, in the article, I mentioned kind of three high level things. And then I know today's conversation is about diving a little deeper, but it's essentially, you know, starting by figuring out where your problems are using that 80-20 rule, figuring out the stores or products or areas of loss um, that you know you need to focus on. Uh, prioritizing that work. So figuring out what does the organization believe is the value of all of this stuff. And, you know, if I have a bunch of things to do, how do I decide which one to do first? Um, and then finally, you know, try and exceed expectations. So even though you might be expected to just kind of keep your head above water, um, the idea of being able to use your data, be data driven in your decision making, uh, leverage automation, um, there's, there's things that you can do. And so, you know, in the year that follows, if you can tackle more pillars of your total retail loss or, or track your progress. So the business realizes more of the value that you're bringing um, that stuff that can be really, really helpful. And, and then it's, again, it's just more and more that you uh, continue to be able to deliver. So that's kind of the high level. And I'm, I'm sure we'll uh, dive in here a little bit more in, in a few. Well, and I'm sure you guys know that I'm going to kind of pick your brains as we go along here a little bit. Uh, what do you think is the, the, biggest area right now where companies seem to be moving towards uh, more of an analytics process? At least uh, from, you know, I'll, I'll be interested in Molly's perspective as well. Uh, but I know for me, it's similar to the illusion that I made to the BOPIS area um, is more and more the fact that Omnichannel is facing the customer. It's now also facing internally um, to all of those other departments. So inventory availability, um, being able to get the customer the ability to purchase where they want, when they want, how they want, whatever device and things like that. Um, that whole e-commerce and, and how that inventory flows, how those transactions flow back and forth. And then how do we put the process controls in place? Because oftentimes the customer facing elements get deployed very quickly so that you can impact the top line, which is great. Um, but also there are natural sort of holes in those processes or things that can be exploited. And then how do you 
make sure that you're, um, you know, sort of plugging those gaps and things like that. So that's, that's, I'm cu curious Molly's perspective as well. Yeah, I, I definitely see a lot of the shifts that you're talking about, Scott, especially around omni-channel, um, you know, a lot of the things you're you're saying serving the customer has caused us to put so many different pieces of process, pieces of data, pieces of technology in different places. And I see a lot of companies putting great work into bringing all of those things together. I think also, you know, the times of COVID, there's a lot of innovation, right? And we talk about doing more with less. What does reopening stores safely mean? And, and what does new processes around, um, you know, safety and cleaning and different measures that we're putting into place? How do we handle that? And, and is there data and analytics that can help us do that in the best way? And lastly, I'd add, besides those different areas, the biggest shift I'm seeing in analytics right now is also the democratization of actionable analytics throughout organizations. You know, it used to be we use analytics at the corporate level in our, um, you know, weekly touch bases to report the news or to make, to make quick decisions or to start to strategize, uh, to plan, you know, forecasts and, and to kind of come up with corporate level strategy and the ability of um, technology and the success of retail analytics teams that I'm seeing right now is putting the right nuggets of data, the right tools around data in the hands of people throughout organizations to help them drive informed and strategic decisions. Okay. Let's move on to our first uh, primary uh, topic here. The 80-20 rule is great for determining where your focus needs to be, but how do you ensure that the 80% of stores that are less of a concern are still covered so that you'll know if issues are starting to arise. I guess what, one of my, um, that was actually one of the areas uh, after you're reading your article, Scott, that, that I actually had questions. I mean, if you, you look at, I think we all understand the importance of target programs and getting into that 20%, but you also have those stores out there that um, their profit margins might be a little slimmer because they're in stronger markets. Their sales are pretty good or steady. You, you know, their shrink is pretty good. And, uh, you know, that if you look at other factors like the markets that they're in and what they're paying in, you know, rent to rent a space, you know, those types of things, they're, they're, how do we maximize the analytics process to try to help those stores as well? instead of just focusing on that 20%, which of course we want to do, how do we help those other stores? Yeah, it's, it's totally valid. I think, um, like, like you said, there's, there's so much uh, putting out fires that happens um, that we want to make sure that we squeeze every uh, amount of value that we possibly can. I know uh, when I was leading um, analytics teams on the retail side, kind of the first thing was um, let's make sure we're playing defense. I don't want to get embarrassed. Um, I don't want sales audit to call me up and say, Hey, did you know that in this store in rural, wherever there's been $5,000 to the same credit card or something, you know, I don't want to get those phone calls. I want to, you know, it's our job to make sure that stuff like that doesn't leak through. So from a, from a first line of defense perspective, 
It was about getting a system, you know, first of all, visibility to the right data. We need our register information. We need our inventory information. It needs to be flowing in a way that we can make sense out of it. Um, and then once we started to make sense out of it, we have to automate as much as we can. Um, you know, I've worked in environments, I'm sure many uh, of us have where, you know, everyone says, I've got the, the data rock star. I've got the analytics person who's just, they know the reports. They know exactly how to find all the information, um, which, which is great. You know, there's, there's absolutely, if I've been that guy, there's, there's a huge space for um, that in the industry. Um, but we can help that guy. Um, we can help them out by getting a system that allows the, everything that lives in their brain to be sort of democratized. As Molly mentioned, it's, it's a perfect segue because getting those insights to the people in all of those stores, including the 80%, um, that's where it becomes really, really powerful. And, and you know, it multiplies the force by saying that, hey, we have the safety net for if the fraud happens and the really bad stuff that we really want to pre prevent. And then in the meantime, you know, we can be, you know, sort of statistical and we can look at the smaller bumps and the smaller things that are happening. And if we can get that store manager to buy in or that district manager to buy in and act on the results of the analytics as well, then we've got a whole heck of a lot more coverage uh, when it comes to those other stores. And then they're continually maximizing value as well. So I think that's that's probably the first place that I would think of when I think how, how do we cover the entire net as opposed to just um, that small 20%. Uh, how do you think we get people to buy into that? I mean, what, what do you think are some of the best ways that we can do that? Uh, be right early. So what I mean by that is, uh, you know, most people have a testing process or, um, you know, some sort of phase rollout that they like to do. If they're doing some sort of new um, initiative or whatever, there's always, okay, let's go with our rockstar DM or let's go with this market that is close to the corporate office or whatever. Um, when we were rolling out stuff to that market, we have to make sure that we're test and validate. Um, because the worst thing you could possibly do is send garbage and then everybody starts to not trust, then you have to claw back. Um, so that is, at least in my experience, what I've seen is, is do that uh, correctly before you push really fast to you know, completely federate everything out um, so you don't end up stepping on your own toes. Um, and then catalog um, that type of activity. And so like, Hey, we tried initiative a, um, and this is how awesome it was. So when we move forward into initiative B, we have the credibility, even if that we're talking to a group internally that doesn't maybe know, um, exactly what happened or all the details of initiative a, um, we can bring some credibility and some results and things to that conversation with us. I've seen that what you're speaking of kind of that, that getting the group think, uh, mentality around what is successful and and what's working in these sort of implementations or you know any new process be so powerful um, you know I've worked on projects where they put out weekly newsletters where they highlighted all those um, different wins or had a subcommittee of um, end users that uh, you know really got together to share their insights and, and then uh, send it out to their different teams. And I've definitely seen that the, the projects that we're involved in that include that ability, not only have that great buy-in from the team, but also are more successful in the long run because there's that constant learning that's going on and feeding back to the program. Okay.
Do you have any stories or examples of times when you were able to use data to get someone to think differently about how to improve shrink? I'll actually go first on this one, if you don't mind, Scott. I have uh, recently actually worked with a customer who really, really wanted to increase and improve the way that their business looked at shrink um, to also look at sort of some margin loss and, and margin erosion um, aspects of the loss that their company was experiencing. And I think they, they used a really great strategy to do it because they had traditionally been focused in, in shrinks, product in product loss. And what they started doing was they started identifying these um, manual sort of discounts and, and margin erosion, um, abuse type patterns of behaviors that were going on in their business. And what they did was they, they slowly rolled out this idea and started investigating these uh, different scenarios that came up. And what they found is that these instances where there was large margin erosion, there was also large shrink going on. Right. So the 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 instances, the cashiers or the processes that allowed for this type of, of markdown abuse also allowed for a lot of shrink. And so they started with that and then slowly and surely kind of expanded to look at areas where there was maybe margin erosion without the shrink and, and really getting that cross-functional buy-in for how do we change the conversation about total loss in our business and, and bring that all together. And I thought that that was a really intelligent way to start with something that everyone knows that has a flavor of, of something new and then really kind of look at the something new more holistically. I can chime in with uh, that. Uh, that I love that example um, because it you know keeps with the theme of kind of have to you know, start with a win or start with something that it, you know feels um, very tangible to everybody and then kind of expand from there. Um, you know, sort of somewhat similarly. I know I was working uh, a few years ago on an initiative to revamp uh, merchandise protection, so EAS tagging and things like that. Um, within the business and, uh, you know, kind of try to make some data driven, driven decisions about how that was going to be executed. Um, so that, you know, just to kind of more control over it, uh, more trackable and traceable to, to understand what the impact of it was. And I, at the time, uh, the business was tagging in the stores. So obviously applying the tags to the product takes time. It takes payroll hours and, and their effort and things to do. And so as we were going through the exercise, myself and my team were very intentional about making sure that we were also, you know, as we were shifting, okay, let's make sure we do this product or that style or whatever it happens to be to make sure that we're covering the high shrink areas of the business. Let's also make sure that we have a column there that's telling us how many units we're suggesting that we want to either take off the program or put on the program. Because we want to make sure that when we're communicating with, communicating with operations about, hey, we'd like to make these changes. And oh, by the way, along the way, uh, we're gonna do a little bit better at protecting our stuff. And we're gonna try to keep flat your payroll investment because we know that obviously it's a huge expense. It's very important to control. 
um, and bring that information to the table with us as well. So uh, it was nice because it was kind of a, a group effort and let's make sure that we do this so that when we enter that conversation and it, and it sort of played out exactly that way, it was, here's our proposal. We'd like to switch from A to B. Um, and then, you know, the first question is, well, yeah, but that's X number more that's going to cost us this much more in payroll. And we're like, glad you brought that up because here are the actual numbers on how many more, you know, it'll be a quarter of an hour additional per month or something like that, you know, across the chain. And it was, it was really nice to have done that on the front end instead of having to go back and scramble and things. And, and it just helped in the influencing process. How about at the field level? You know, how, how do you get the field loss prevention team, for example, more engaged in this process? Um, that is a that that is a good question. Um, I think the you know we may talk about it here in a little bit as well. But there's a lot of folks in the field that you know didn't necessarily take the job in order to be an analyst. Um, and so, and, and may, may not have done like, you know, forward thinking or progressive or whatever, um, you know, analysis type types of projects in the past. And so they're relying on their experience and what they've done, which is like incredibly important to, to have that piece out there. And it's exactly why they were hired. You know, that's what their, their skill set is. Um, but, you know, when you do stuff like this, I think one of the, one of the ways that you can fall down a little bit is delivering too much information and to a little context. Um, so, you know, delivering some sort of, it, making it closer to a workflow than a report. So thinking about, you know, rather than here's a big list of cashiers that we think might give you some information if you pick the right person off the list, um, being more pinpointed, um, calling out the anomalies specifically. And even, you know, when you think about kind of what exception reporting has been in the past, Oftentimes it can be, you know, show me all the refunds that were over whatever, or it can be show me all the cashiers whose percent of this is over five. Um, again, that's still, there's still steps to be taken for the end user of that output. Um, I think delivering them the very specific in your area, you know, person A is responsible for these transactions in a list. Here's a link to watch the video of those transactions. Um, and here is a mechanism by which you can put in your notes or add an attachment or resolve your investigation or whatever it happens to be like packaging it up. It becomes more of a, a task. Here's something to go and do as opposed to, you know, could be inbox noise, what some of these things some, sometimes turn out to be. And then you're just hoping that they've decided to do the right thing with it after that. So I think, um, and again, obviously I'm, I'm biased because uh, we, we advocate that prescriptive analytics approach of kind of delivering exactly what the person needs to know, what to do about it, how to resolve. Um, but I've seen success with it also on the retailer side as well. I want to add to what you're saying, Scott, because I think it's so powerful to deliver that exactly what to do. But the other piece of that is whenever, you know, you roll out something new um, and, it, you know, whether it's prescriptive analytics or a new process, um, when we really take the time to explain the why and track the progress, the time savings, the increase in uh, cases or case value or the decrease in shrink and be really visible it, as to why do we think this initiative is important? Why do we think 
Um, this is going to improve your business. And, and then a month later, two months later, a year later, go back and show them, hey, hey when everyone in the field has done this, here's how it's rolled up and here's the impact that you guys have had. I think that's a really powerful thing um, that is common in when we roll out processes and things. And sometimes in analytics, we forget to do it. So I think it's really great when we, we remember to do that with analytics as well. Okay, let's move on. Most LP programs have some sort of high shrink focus program for the worst performing shrink stores. How do you think about how do you think about selecting stores for these types of programs? So um, a few thoughts uh, here because I've gone through a couple different versions of this in, in my past and. Uh, the first thing I think about um, in the selection criteria is making sure that all of the right levers for how they're going to get the results are included in the ranking process. So, you know, a, a common or perhaps a legacy sort of process would be, you know, assigning a shrink percent and say everybody two and up is on the program or everybody X and up is on the program, um, which, uh, you know, theoretically is taking into account both sales and shrink, but, uh, the volumes of each of those two numbers kind of gets ignored in the percentage. And so one of the things that I tried that experienced some success was just kind of averaging together the sales dollars and the shrink dollars um, to kind of weight both of them into the formula so that I could say, okay, I want to control, you know, speaking of doing more with less and all that stuff, you, you only have a certain number of stores you can realistically put on a program because it requires additional boots on the ground or additional auditing or other different types of measures that need to be executed. And so having said that, we wanna balance um, the size of the prize in shrink improvement that is available um, with what we can actually execute. So even though a, you know, a store that might be a 3%, if that shrink dollar at a 3% is only 10K because it's a really small low volume store, uh, maybe we could go to a store that it's only, you know, a 2.6, but that shrink dollar value is 35K. And so that is something where if we make the incremental improvements there, we're going to get more dollars back to the business. And, and again, it would be great to be able to say everywhere where we perceive a problem we can execute, but you have to be realistic with these kinds of things. So even something as simple as um, merging sales and shrink in a, in a unique way, um, I think can help to uh, add value to the process and control for, for some of the different level levers. And additionally, if there's other things that you're expecting from performance standpoint out of these stores, if you're wanting them to do better in waste or damages or their chargebacks or other pillars of total retail loss, um, those can be included. Um, you can include uh, weighted averages and historic performance and all kinds of different uh, levels of granularity. If you have uh, like some, some folks either have crime risk scoring or internal risk scoring where they're trying to identify, um, you know, what are the non-controllable factors? What are the environmental factors of the market that I'm in or where the store is located? Um, you know, all of that stuff can be brought in. Uh, it's a question of how you can automate it because there's another balancing ink that you have to, to execute is, it's great if I have 19 metrics and I've come up with this complicated algorithm, um, but if it takes me, you know, three and a half weeks to be able to compile all that information and spit out a, a list. And then that's three and a half weeks, or you know, maybe it should have taken me one. So maybe it's two and a half weeks that we could have just rolled out the problem and started rolling our sleeves up. So 
it's a balance between how much value does it add to the list you get out at the end um, versus how much time does it take you to generate and sort of follows to Molly's point is that you make ranking number one, maybe the old way. And then ranking number two is the new way. And what stores did it take off or what stores did it add on? What is the actual change? Not just assume that we worked harder on the new way, which means it must be better. Um, let's stop and evaluate, like tracking the, the progress of what it is that we've been doing. So um, that's a sort of an important thing that I've had to deal with balance. And because, you know, uh, you know, as the person putting a list like this together, you're probably individually doing more with less. So you want to make sure that, you know, you didn't turn, turn your shrink ranking process into a month long um, sort of semi career while you were at it. And then another thing um, that I've seen is very important is to run like a real world sort of sanity check against your data-driven process. So you can spend that effort, which I think is extremely valuable because it allows you to say, this is how we came up with the list. It allows you to reevaluate whether those were the right decisions the next time you do the process. Um, it allows you to avoid things like uh, biases and things that can creep into processes like that. I wanna add this or I wanna add that. We just, you know, we looked at the numbers, we came up with an intelligent way to do it. And that's how we came up with our list. But then running it by the teams, you know, that field loss prevention team or that regional manager team on the ops side and saying, okay, show me what I'm missing, right? I've used the numbers. I believe that I've gotten pretty close to the pin, but there's got to be some stuff that maybe, and, and that's where you're blending the art and the science of the analytics process. And in the past, an example of this working was, um, you know, we had a list of, I don't know if it was 30 stores or something like that. And one of the brands that we were working with and, uh, every, we kept 29 out of the 30 and one we swapped out because the regional manager said, Hey, uh, about three months into that inventory cycle, that store flooded and they lost basically all of their inventory. They were shut down for a significant period of time. They had all kinds of stuff going on. And so this inventory result is a reset. If you look at their historic results and the continuity of the team, they're in good shape the resources should not be spent there. They should be spent at this other location that was kind of next on the list. Um, and I'm like, that's fantastic. It was not something that I was considering at the time. It was not data that I had in my um, evaluation process. And so being able to sanity check that um, both uh, helped me to get the resources deployed correctly, but also you get the buy-in. You're an agent, you field person or you operations person are an agent in this decision-making process and you're helping and it generates that kind of ownership and things that really makes it feel like a team effort. Um, so long answer, I know, but um, I have a lot of thoughts about that, I guess. Molly, I'm curious to your opinion too. Well, I agree with everything you're saying, Scott, but I think the other, and I think it kind of goes along with everything you're saying, but one thing I wanna do is when I'm looking at that list, that 30 stores or that 50 stores or whatever that number is, I want to make sure all my bases are covered in terms of the volume of the store, which I think you mentioned, but also the different formats of the store, how that store receives product. Do they have a different delivery method, um, you know, in their in their supply chain that I want to make sure isn't causing some, you know, risk for theft? Are they geographically spread out and demographically um, spread out in a way that as I'm fixing this, I'm also gonna learn about some of the things that make this particular store format unique that I want to incorporate into 
um, you know, the next version of that that shrink focus program or just kind of spread wider um, in terms of my best practices or my audit questions or, or things like that. So I think definitely taking a look at that list and making sure that it is a representation of your business um, and not just the top stores by the numbers is, is really critical. You guys have kind of touched on this, but I'm curious about this as well. When you look at execution out, out in the stores and you're determining which stores to start with, you know, how much of a factor does it come, come into play uh, as far as the management teams or the leadership that's actually responsible for executing those programs in the store? What, uh, what do you think of that topic? And um, what advice would you give for companies as they're trying to make those considerations? I mean, I would come back to the same the same point that I just made um, is that I would want a breadth. I'd want some of the stores on this list to, you know, come from, you know, great tenured management, great tenured leadership in the field. And, and really see how they take this program and use it to level up their challenging um, locations. And I'd also wanna take this, some of my younger tenure, some of my less experienced um, team members out there and put them through the same paces and have them really learn from this program. Um, I can also say sometimes um, you know, just a quick story comes to mind um, of a store visit that I was on. And, and the purpose of this store visit was actually not to visit um, an underperforming store, but was actually to, to visit a really great performing store. And I remember when we were there and we were in the back room, they had the cleanest back room, the most organized process. You know, you wanna talk about first in, first out, they, they had all of that nailed. And one thing we noticed is that all of their part-time employees, we saw these pictures of them all over um, the store. And what they had done was they had given everyone a region and an area and to own, right? And, and that had really improved their process so much. And it was something that we would have never thought about or seen without this, this store visit. And, and it, that became part of, in, in a different way, but in you know, giving that ownership to the team became part of our best practices where we were trying to improve um, shrink. And so I just think um, you know, really looking at the breadth of, of the store chain, new tenure um, versus experienced tenure versus top performing versus different formats and different volumes is such a great way to use these programs to improve shrink and to learn. Yeah, it's spot on. It, it definitely dovetails into what I was thinking about this as well is the, the ad, take that store manager and add them to the district call for the, for the target stores and just have it be a coaching moment and say, hey, there's some really great things that are going on and we're going to let one of your peers share with you some of those things. So you get like ownership, you get best practice sharing, you get the internal sort of competitiveness of, well, I can be as good as them. I, I definitely can handle that. Uh, we're, you know, we're going to do that and get better because you may, 
I think it's great to, to, to pick a sample and get that the breadth of the program, but it might be that you have to put a really new store manager into an LP program um, that because we just, you know, th there's something has to be managed in the store. We have to figure out where, what's going on and get things tightened up. And maybe that's the whole reason that that new manager was brought in. And so uh, how do we, you know, learn and get that because those best practices don't always make it into policy and procedure. You know, it takes a lot to change what's standardized across an entire organization. But if you can get those nuggets of wisdom and, um, and, and sometimes it only works regionally, sometimes just the way things are and um, the speed of the business and things like that. And one part of the country might be a little different, but it's great to share that as much as you can. And I think the other thing too, is making sure that the program includes a feedback mechanism from the people that are executing it. So it's not just coming down the mountain at folks and saying, these are the seven things you need to do and that'll help your shrink. It's saying you own the action plan and then you're telling us how it's going regular check-in times. We're having the calls and doing those things so that regardless of experience level or regardless of if you've been on the program or you haven't or how long you've worked here, um, you have the kind of ability to say, this isn't working um, or, or it is working really well. And I, if, no, if, if nobody else is doing this, they should probably start. Uh, you know, because it, it's like everything when it becomes, they feel ownership and it feels like a partnership, things just seem to run more smoothly that way. So that's, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. Uh, Molly, I think we're going to start with you on this one. This, this goes to a question I kind of jumped the gun on a little bit earlier, I think. Um, there are many highly skilled field teams in the LP industry but they don't always feature a lot of analytical minded people who love digging into the data. How can leaders make a team like this as skilled and self-sufficient as possible at being data driven? So I definitely think um, we have started to answer this um, and, and it comes back to something we were talking about earlier in terms of sharing the whys and ensuring the successes. Uh, I'll talk, since we've touched on it already, I'll talk about a specific example um, of an A-B test that we ran in, in one of my clients um, in the past. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to show the field and, and the corporate office, we wanted, to, we wanted to kind of test this concept and we got everyone in on it and we said, okay, here's your traditional way of doing it. Here's this traditional analytic that you've used in the past um, and that everybody in your business is kind of, you know, emotionally attached to, this is a part of the process and this is what we're gonna do. And we ran it and it was successful and it was working. And then what we did is we said, okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to add this new level of analytics, right? And in this case, it was a um, machine learning algorithm and some, some statistical analysis that we were adding into the process. And, and we turned that on and we ran it alongside the other process, right? And we had a fixed period of time with which we were gonna run this experiment. Now I've seen this done. Sometimes you split the chain up and you do half and half. You know, sometimes you do the first six weeks and the next six weeks. In this case, uh, we were doing them side by side because we did not wanna miss one thing here in this business. And, 
And in the end, what we decided was that in the new analytical um, space, with the new analytical version of this process, we saved time. We found things, we found everything that was found in the traditional process, and we found a few extras. Um, and, and it was just so clear, it was so black and white um, that we had taken this approach. Everyone understood the approach, everyone understood the results, and, and then we were able to move it, you know, move on in six weeks rather than kind of this prolonged period of you know, you know, some people buying in and, and kind of gradually getting that throughout um, throughout you know sometimes a year I've seen when uh, you don't take that analytical approach to analytics so to speak. So um, I, I really I think an anecdote is the best way I can answer that uh, since we did touch on it earlier in the call. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, a hallmark of that approach is the fact that you and, and the customer had agreed or developed a way to assess what success was going to look like. So, you know, in approach number one, you know, this was how successful approach number two was how successful it might seem like a little more work up front to be able to, you know, put yourself in a position to track it. I think uh, it pays off because like you said, it, it eliminates the time to upskill the team because in a way you're just changing, you, you may not be changing anything front facing. You might just be changing the, you know, the output is just better. Um, even though it looks really similar, uh, the approach changed a little bit. And so, you know, you kept the complexity in the tool, which is kind of back to automation and things. And I think another way to do this is to make sure that you also have a mechanism, whether it's systemic or otherwise, to track the performance of the actual users. Um, you know, those, those field folks that are in the tool, making sure that, you know, number one, hopefully there's an expectation from their leadership that, that they use the, the tool or the, the output of the analytics so that they know, hey, this is a job requirement. Um, but then, you know, you can, you can pay attention to how often are they in the tool? Um, is it just on, you know, one day a week, an office day? Is that aligned with expectations or should it really be more um, spread throughout the week? And, you know, how much of the output are they getting through? Um, it's not always easy to figure that stuff out. Um, I personally know of a good tool that that allows you to track that within uh, the tool itself. Um, but there's also a, you know many other ways that you could you could approach that. And it's not again like messaging and partnership is the key piece. It's not a gotcha process to be able to say, "Haha, you didn't do the work this week." It's about the the response to that is, "What training do you need?" Like, let's help you get there. Let's get a session scheduled. Um, let's have something so that it makes sure that, you know, we're trying to make the output of this as straightforward as possible so you can work with it. Um, but let's, you know, if, if it's not, let's get it better. And if it's a problem where you just didn't maybe understand the training the first time, or if there's something you're struggling with, let's get you there. Cause we know based on, you know, it working most places, we know how valuable it can be. And so like, let's, let's walk together along the road and, um, you know, help, uh, that process get better. And then hopefully as that continues to play out, the team realizes, wow, it, you know, I can see the value and, you know, sometimes it just takes time, but, uh, you know, I think the approach matters a lot. How about from your team's perspective? If you look, if you look at it from your team and being the teacher and delivering that information out to the field, what do you think as a teacher, so to speak, um, you can do to help uh, develop a team to be better at communicating that information to the field, whether it's your team at Zebra, like 
for example, what are some of the things that you do? Or if it's the teams uh, for the different retailers out there and, and how they go about um, communicating that information. You want to go, Molly? I can go. Yeah, sure. Uh, so <laughs> I would, yeah, I would. So for you know, from what I've seen with the, um, you know, it's it's the word ownership for sure comes to mind. Uh, making sure that you know the when I think about the way the Zebra team and uh, interacts with customers, it's making sure that you know that customer team realizes that they have a huge you know stake in this. That it's not just um, you know system spits out. Um, and there's not much we can do about it kind of thing. It's like, we're going we're gonna to walk along the journey together and th this will make you better at a lot of different things because if, if we're drawing the data throughout your business into a tool and, and gaining insights out of it, um, it can make you better at a lot of things. It can make you, certainly you can control your shrink and the things that you you're, have front of mind from a goal standpoint or whatever, but it makes you a better business partner as well, because you just, you understand more about what the data looks like in the business. I understand better how the register functions, or I understand better um, what the symptoms are when something is a training error versus something that could end up looking suspicious. Um, and, and a lot of times you can tell that just by looking at the data or the transactions and things like that. And, um, but it, it takes practice. You know, you have to have seen a lot of it and you have to have, um, you know, maybe, maybe worked with it uh, quite a bit. And so, um, you know, there's that. And then just the openness and saying, hey, we do have people that do love digging into the data, right? You have this safety net of your, you know, there's an analytics team. You know, if I'm, a, you know, on the customer side, I have an analytics team and we're going to have office hours for you. We're going to show up on, you know, Wednesdays from three to four, and we're going to be on this open conference call and bring your questions, uh, bring your thoughts or whatever. Um, that, that can be a hugely helpful thing. And it brings, oftentimes that ends up being a smaller group. So you have people that are more willing to share like, Oh, I had a little trouble with this or that. Cause you know, like it's the constant teaching training uh, scenario of not wanting to ask the stupid question. Um, so you can sometimes eliminate that by uh, having a smaller group setting um, and then finally, the idea of the peer teaching that we talked about a little bit with the store manager side, I've seen that be very successful as well um, on the field loss prevention side where you say, okay, hey, we're going to do, you know, investigation a week or inside of the week or something like that, where one of your peers found something interesting, you know, the output of the system led them to this action that they took. Um, and they're going to talk a little bit about this was what I did. This was the process I followed. I opened the report or I opened the insight. Um, and I did these three things as a result of what it was telling me. Uh, and there's just no substitute at all for peers teaching their peers that, uh, because you hear it and they think, okay, if they can do it, I can do it. I, you know, I, I gotta get there. It's a, it's a requirement. It's things that I need to do. So. So I've had a chance to think about it and I, I really wanted to think as well about my team that, um, I work for and I, I manage, um, analysts. And when we're teaching them to be self-sufficient, to, to work in anything new, um, a lot of times the questions or, or the things that come up, the way that someone will describe to me the stumbling, the stumbling block is, is, is a detail, is in the minutia. 
And what I found is when I have them show me, show me that email that you have a question about, show me that analytic that you have a question about, that I really get a chance to understand why it's a stumbling block for them. Is it because they haven't done something similar before? Is it truly a technical training? Is it a soft skill that I want to coach and work on with that person? So I think for me, one of the techniques I use a lot is to really have someone show me what the um, what it is that they're working through that they want to be more self-sufficient in and and kind of help understand the why of, of that hang up um, firsthand. And then the other thing that I'll mention is when we talk about um, the harder situations, the things where I don't have have um, the quick answer off the top of my head of, of how they can, how I can solve their problem is I empower them to help me solve the problem. Okay, I understand this is uh, where you're feeling stuck. I don't have a great answer for that and, and be honest and transparent about it. Why don't you help me uh, come up with that answer and, and let's talk about some different reasons and let's set some time a week from now to kind of come back to that uh, group think. So I think that for me, that works um, for analysts and, and also for field trainings um, as well. Okay, let's move on. As LP departments tackle these initiatives, what are some of the ways they can track their success and show that to the business? So this was somewhat uh, introed by Molly in her a previous story that she told. It was a great story about the idea of A-B testing. I think, you know, the first thing that I think about here is try and capture whatever your baseline is, um, whether that's captured systemically or whether you need to go grab your KPIs. It's, you know, what are the problems we're trying to solve with whatever it is that we're doing? You know, if we're trying to do something to tackle refund fraud or if we're trying to develop some sort of, um, process that helps us with on-shelf availability. Regardless, how are you going to measure it? You know, decide that early so that you know what the state of the business is right now. Um, and then down the road, when you come back to that, that will be really important information. And maybe it, you have a you know some some way of going back and figuring out what it was six months ago. Um, but it's just better to kind of memorialize it at the beginning of the initiative because then you kind of know the reality and then the bullseye doesn't move. You know, oftentimes, especially if you have to spend money to do whatever it is you're trying to do, the business is gonna want some sort of business case or something put together. So um, knowing how it's gonna be measured and what the current state is will help you down the road. And then another thing that I think is, is you know, it's, it's difficult to do truly scientific experiments in retail. Uh, there are tons of moving pieces and different things that change. Um, you know, and variables that go into the situation. And um, one thing that I have uh, had help with this in the past is uh, oftentimes um, either marketing or finance, or there'll be other teams internally that have some uh, testing software, or they have a team dedicated to running tests in the business. A lot of times in e-com, they'll have these types of things as well, because it's far simpler to run a scientific test on a website because you can actually pick random samples of customers to expose things to and do other things like that. So you can leverage if you have other people internally that do this 
kind of as their entire job, you could say, hey, will you help me pick, you know, a test and control group because we want to deploy something new and we really want to make sure that uh, when we try to evaluate it after three months, six months, a year or whatever, that we're, we have picked a good controlled baseline um, to be able to, to figure out whether the things that we're doing are really affecting the variables that we think they're going to affect. Um, and then sort of the final thing being if, if it can be automated or if you can at least come up with a system of tracking the things that you're doing. So, uh, you know, most people have an expectation, you know, thinking about investigations, there's typically a very well-established tracking mechanism. Some, someone has a piece of case management software or a mechanism for that, and we need you to add uh, your interview form and your statement, and we need you to track the times that this happened and all of the narrative about it and all these things. So there's a very well-defined set of criteria, bits of information that we wanna learn so that we can, and certainly because anything where there's legality involved as well, um, it's always important to have, have all that information, but we're already usually good at that in LP. Uh, we're probably may have some room to grow where things are not theft or fraud. What is the value of identifying an anomaly and then having a conversation with an associate, retraining them that, I know you might've thought that was the way the discount policy worked, but really this is what that code is for. It's not for when that frequent flyer customer comes in and to say, hey, you've been a really good customer. Let me give you another 30%. You know, we'll have that conversation. It's far cheaper to have that conversation it is than to let it fly down the road and then think I'm not being monitored and turns to theft or whatnot. Um, you know, and then you have to deal with it a different way. So what value can be placed on those sort of non-case activities so that you can track those types of things or even kind of a before and after of the LP training that you give. If I'm gonna go give a workshop in a market, maybe I wanna take a pulse of how those associates feel about their sort of aptitude or their knowledge of the subject. Or maybe I wanna look at some KPIs in that market before I travel there to kind of take a snapshot, figure out how things are looking, deliver the training. And then four weeks down the road, was there any change in momentum or how the associates feel or any of those kinds of things? Uh, again, it sounds like maybe a little extra work and, and oftentimes it can be to track some of that stuff, but the value is incredible. I mean, it allows me to check, is the training doing the things that I want it to do? Are the associates feeling differently after they've gone through it? And then, you know, internally or at the corporate level, this is, these are other pillars of value that loss prevention is bringing to the business that is often not captured. Because if it just becomes about case counts and things, or if it just becomes about that high level, um, you know, shrink number, those are types of things that oftentimes there are other confounding variables that makes it, you know, difficult to say this caused that. Uh, but the more of the other sorts of tracking that you can develop into your program, um, the better you can communicate stuff like that internally. I mean, I think we've talked about it a few times and, and Scott's really covered it well. and. Um, you know, what I come back to is, is, is being creative with what are those KPIs and then thinking beyond the KPI to just really defining what is the key success outcome of what I'm trying to do. And it can be high level. I can tell you I'm working on a new uh, customer implementation and, you know, beyond some of their KPIs, they said, you know, we just really want to get rid of all of this reporting that we're sending because we don't think we need this and you know this many reports and it's not you know useful for our team so high level we have a, a kpi that we could track number of reports eliminated and then 
we have, you know, as we look at each report, we have the same questions. What is the outcome that we want here? What is the business process that this report was intended to address? How do we um, fold that into an existing process report or prescriptive analytic? And, you know, when we've done that, then, then the case, then we have a story to tell of here's here's what we've done about that and now we don't need that report. So it's it's kind of thinking different about what your success outcomes are and being not afraid to define your own KPIs and your own success outcomes um, if you think and know they're valuable to your business. Okay, that moves us on to the questions. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I. Um... We got so entrenched in that conversation, we don't have a whole lot of time for the questions. But before we begin, I want to remind you that this webinar will be available on demand for the next 90 days or so. You should be receiving an email reminder with a link to the presentation. There will also be a link on the webinar page of the magazine's website, losspreventionmedia.com. Uh, I think we have about time for one question here. Um, what are some of the ways LP organizations can partner with internal partners to do more with less? You know, I'll go first, Scott, because one of the big things that I've learned from you and one of the, the Scott-isms that I've learned is great operators have better shrink numbers, right, or, or less shrink. and. I think that that is so critical in, in how I look at some aspects of, of loss prevention and the idea that what we put in place in terms of our procedures to address the business holistically have benefit throughout store operations, throughout merchandising, throughout finance. And whenever I'm kind of in charge of a, a cross-functional initiative, I, I definitely look to understand what's the benefit, what's the benefit to the other person on the other side of the aisle that they want to achieve? Why do I want to achieve something different but similar? And, and how do we come together for the greater good? And um, I think that's a really powerful way to look at it. Yep, uh, totally agree. Um... And you know the fact that you mentioned operations, kind of that's front of mind to me as well. They're the ones who are going to help you be the eyes and ears, especially if you're doing more with less. You you really want to try to to get their buy-in, have them help you with some of the things that you're trying to execute. Um, and as you mentioned, getting that buy-in is all about showing the wins, showing the why. Here's the value that it brings back to the business, and and it applies to you know not just operations. Maybe may end up being sort of the the key first player that you reach out to. But, you know, if you're talking to sales audit or inventory control or supply chain or trying to look at different areas of the business, um, you know, taking that what's in it for them along with, uh, you know, along with you to the conversation is just uh, extremely helpful. So knowing that you have a way to, to put value on that kind of stuff is really helpful. Okay, guys, uh, that's all the time we have for today's Q&A. Uh, if we haven't answered your question, uh, someone will follow back up with you within the next few days. Um, I would like to thank everyone for attending the webinar today. Um, thanks again to Scott and Molly, and especially our sponsors, Zebra Analytics. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. 
Um, thank, thank you all for your time. Stay safe and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. You're listening to the LPM Podcast.